give our kiddos a moment to sit back down and move out. All right. Ashish is about six. And when I first met him, I was obviously quite impressed with his stature. But as we began to pray, I realized he was actually a gentle man. He was a bit of a gentle giant. As he prayed, his voice cracked and quivered. Tears uh, streamed down his face as he prayed for the people of Arissa. And as I began to understand a little more of his story, Ashutosh explained to me that he had arrived in 2012 with the plan to help start a church in this uh, state in India. And as he began to put his house in order, a man came over wearing a police uh, uniform and flashed his badge, so to speak, and began asking Ashutosh a few questions. And Ashutosh, being a man who wasn't going to lie, explained that he was indeed a Christian, and he was here to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, a couple days later, the policeman returned and looked Ashutosh square in the eye. I'm going to guess he was looking up because Ashutosh is a large man, and told him, I'm coming back tomorrow, and if you are here, I will kill you, and I will tell the other authorities that you are a terrorist, and they will believe me. We do not want your kind here. Ashutosh had no option. He had to leave, and that's how I ended up meeting him, is he was now in our city looking to participate in the spread of the gospel in a context that was unfriendly to the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Why am I telling you this story? One, I want you to hear that there are those who are so passionate for the gospel that they risk all, and we should be prayerfully supporting them. But I also want you to understand that my entrance into Ashutosh's story began with hearing his prayer. You see, what somebody prays about reveals an awful lot about what drives them, where their passions are. And I'm not talking about our, we thank you for our family, our food, and our friends right before meal kind of prayer. I'm talking about the mother or father who kneels beside their child's bed and cries out to the Lord to protect and preserve their child. I'm talking about the person who is holding hands with their dear loved ones on the eve of their return to Christ, weeping and praying that they would find comfort in their Savior. I'm talking about Ashutosh who wept as he prayed for the gospel to go to the very people who had threatened his life. Somebody's prayer life will tell you an awful lot about their passion and their heart. And the same is true with Jesus himself. As we look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, we will hear Jesus telling us how to pray. It's something we are so familiar with that I think we often miss the beauty and the power of this prayer and what it reveals about our Savior. So we will be looking at Matthew chapter 6, 9 through 13, in which we will understand the divine purpose the Lord has for us the mechanism he has designed to achieve that purpose, 
and his plan for our participation in that. Again, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's bow our heads in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Jesus starts off simply saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Make no mistake that Jesus is inviting us to see God as Father, to recognize our place as his children. But his first request, his first desire, the passion of his heart is that his name would be hallowed. That's an old word. We don't really use that language. To be hallowed means to be consecrated, to be revered, to be seen as holy, to be understood for its worth. You see, worship and reverence is the big picture. The purpose of all creation is, in fact, that God would be glorified. What is the chief end of man? We should have heard this more than once in a Presbyterian church, but to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Why did God create all of this? For His delight and for His creation to return, looking up at Him with worship so that God would be glorified. John Piper describes missions in a well-known book, and he famously says, missions exists because worship doesn't. You see, what we are called to be doing when we engage in missions is to be pushing worship to every sphere in our life, in every corner of the world. But I think it actually is a deeper thing. When we think of worship, a lot of us immediately, and I know I, I think this way often, think of what is happening right here, right now. But what creation is all about is something a little bit deeper and richer and even more beautiful than the songs we might sing. You see, we are created to be ambassadors of shalom, to be uh, those who cause shalom to spread throughout the world. Shalom is the Hebrew word that we often translate peace, but it's a theologically rich term. It captures the idea of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It captures the idea of hallowed be your name because shalom only exists, true peace only exists where we rightly relate to God. You see, God sent Jesus to save and to rule so that shalom might spread. We might think of shalom, in fact, as the way things are supposed to be, before sin entered the world and corrupted all the good, beautiful, and true things that the Lord had made, before sin entered the world and made it impossible for us to relate rightly to the Creator God. No, God said, I'm not going to leave you with broken, shattered shalom. I'm going to send my son to bring salvation and to rule. You see, shalom only works when the king is on the throne. Think about this. Jesus in his life, these are the various steps of kingship. He was anointed in his baptism. 
And at the cross, he won his kingdom back from the dominion of death and the devil. And not only that, he defined what his kingdom was like as he died on the cross to save his people. His ascension when he went up to heaven bodily is his coronation. And we await his return in which he will make his kingdom fully manifest. You see, as God's people were called to shalom, to be shalom makers as members of the kingdom of God in which Jesus is our king and rules. There can be no shalom where there is not worship of the one true God. And the cause then is spreading shalom. This theme of our missions month is all about the idea of being shalom creators, shalom ambassadors. We are called to participate with what God is doing in spreading peace and the only way peace can exist is when we are right, re- rightly relating to the Creator God through the uh, right rule of Jesus our King. And it is only under the right rule of Jesus our King that Shalom can exist at all. Think about the way Jesus describes His kingdom. So we're supposed to be creating a kingdom culture. You see how Shalom and kingdom go together? Our culture, as we live as vice regents of Jesus our King, right? We're adopted into the family of God. If we call him Father, that means that all that we say and do is part of us living out being vice regents of King Jesus. And so, as we think about missions then, missions looks like evangelism, discipleship programs, starting schools, mercy ministries, planting churches and training pastors, All of that can fall under the category of spreading shalom. The divine purpose God has for us is to be shalom spreaders, and we do that through missions. So the mechanism then, if we are supposed to get excited and participate in this missions thing, if we're supposed to participate with the divine purpose, the fair question then is what is the mechanism that God gives us to achieve that purpose. Well, our, our uh, text today gives us a beautiful picture of what that looks like as God's kingdom breaks through in verses 10 uh, and 11. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and give us this day our daily bread. So we start with the idea of God's will being done. That's our obedience as God's people. As we sit under the kingship of Jesus, we can't help but be obedient because he is both Savior and King. And, God, and Jesus prays that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. You ever thought about that? What does obedience look like in heaven? It, obedience would be perfect. It would be joyful. It will be natural. Do you feel like your obedience to the Lord is natural right now? Doesn't it feel like a battle sometimes to seek to be obedient? But Jesus prays that as we live out our faith, that our obedience to him would be perfect, joyful, and natural as we grow closer to to God, our Savior, our our, uh, King. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, the task of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible. The mechanism by which God is going to reveal to a watching world what grace looks like, what righteousness is, and all of the beautiful things that he has for us is through the church. 
the church takes that which is invisible, that which is abstract, that which is known but not always comprehended, and reveals it by the power of the Holy Spirit working through people like you and me. And we are invited into that mechanism. We pray for his, he prays for his will to be done. That's a great prayer, but do you know what his will is? Well, how can we possibly know the will of God? See, if we want his will to be done, we need to know what it is. So what has God done for his bride, the church? He has given us his word. The infallible, perfect word of God transmitted over generations and centuries so that you and I sitting here right now could understand the beauty of the bride that we are to participate in so that we could understand his will, so that we might be ambassadors of shalom. He has given us his word as a glorious gift, and so, of course, we pour into it. We seek to understand it and apply it, and he's given us not only the bride of Christ, the church, in an abstract sense, but in a very tangible sense. He's given us ministers, he's given us deacons and elders, and he's given us the fellowship we have together. If you find yourself wondering, how do how does this whole missions thing really work for me? I would encourage you to start with getting to know the people around you. We worship every Sunday, and there are people here who don't know each other. Invite one another over for a meal. Go have coffee together. I promise you that shalom building starts with enriching your relationships within this fellowship community. And so a passion for the kingdom To know God and to know his will is ultimately what will drive this beautiful mechanism, the church. Think about Acts chapter 17, the Bereans. You might remember the story where Paul went and proclaimed the gospel, and this group from Berea said, that sounds really good. You know what we're going to do? We're going to go take what Paul, the great missionary, the great pastor, said and compare it to God's word to make sure it's true. Beloved, don't take my word for it. Ever. Go compare what I say on a Sunday morning to God's word to be sure that it is true and good. That is where hope is found. That's where confidence is found. That's where a heart-shaping, gospel-proclaiming perspective will be built is in God's word. But God doesn't simply stop there. He get to, prays for provision in verse 10. Give us this day our daily bread Now, I think most of us would understand he's not literally saying, give us a piece of bread today. He's saying, make sure that we're nourished. Make sure that we have all that we need to flourish so that we can do the work you've laid out for us. The gospel actually calls us to action, not just in word, but in deed. What would the world look like if the church acted like the church? Let me put it this way. There are 2.38 billion Christians globally. That's about a third of the global population. What if those 2.38 billion Christians, starting with you and me, fit with what Jesus describes the kingdom to be like, to be poor in spirit, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers, to be blessed because we're persecuted for righteousness, What if we actually lived out our faith in such a way that we had no need for oaths because our yes was good enough because of our integrity? What if we were able to turn the other cheek because we saw our neighbor as valuable? 
What if we were able to love our enemies because, because our Savior Jesus tells us to? What would the world be like if the church actually lived like the church? Micah 6.8 says, tells us that, God, that we know exactly how God wants us to live. He has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? That's the kingdom of God. That's the character of the kingdom of God. That's the mechanism by which God is issuing forth, sh- forth shalom around the world. Faithful Christians living their life in a way that reflects gospel truth and the commands of God. It would change the world in a way that we can't even fathom. So if we're supposed to recognize God's divine purpose, delight in and participate in the mechanism to achieve that purpose, then our third question is, what is God's plan for our participation? How does God want us to move from being observers to participants? Well, it's forgiving of debts, of course. Look at verse 12. Jesus prays and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And then verse 13 continues, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do you see that that our entrance into the kingdom comes through forgiveness? Our entrance into the kingdom comes through grace. Brothers and sisters, if you've heard what I've said so far this morning and think, I need to go be really passionate for the kingdom so that God will accept me then you have missed the good news of the gospel. If I have in any way communicated that we do these things so that God can work, you have missed the glory of our Savior. He invites us to participate through forgiveness of our sins, and that causes us to be forgiving people. The gospel is good. And so we have a leading and preserving by the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 15, Jesus tells us, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Your ability and my ability to have faith in Jesus Christ, to trust him for salvation, starts with the simple fact that he sent the Holy Spirit to confirm and affirm what is true in the Scriptures so that you and I might actually have our hearts changed, that we might trust and believe in Jesus, and so that God might be glorified as we live as kingdom dwellers, those who delight in the good news of the gospel and delight in the good laws God has given us. The Holy Spirit will lead and preserve us so that we can participate with what God is doing. Verse 13 tells us that deliverance is given, not earned, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Right? The, prom- or the prayer there is not that we would be so strong and so great that we're not tempted, that we're not struggling, that we are victorious. No. The prayer there is that we would be delivered. We who are helpless, we who have no power over the world, the flesh, and the devil might, by God's grace, be delivered. And that begins with forgiveness of sins, doesn't it? How are we going to be delivered if we're at war, if we're at enmity with the Creator God? So we are invited by grace through faith that we might know Jesus as Savior, be kingdom 
dwellers, be those who love justice and love kindness and walk humbly with our God? How does all that happen? By the Holy Spirit convicting our hearts and drawing us to our Savior so that we might sound and look and behave like Colossians 1 tells us. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We are bought with a price, brought into the family of God to participate through the forgiving of our debts so that we can be forgiving people, so that we can avoid or fight temptation. We're called into battle. We were literally picked up from being enemies of God and put on his side in his army. So we go to battle. But we go to battle through missions in faith as already victorious. Ephesians 6, the classic put on the whole armor of God verses, right? It starts with this, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you, do you feel that? Do you get that, that the, that the kingdom of God is both spiritual. We're at war in a spiritual sense, but it is practical and physical. That's why Jesus prays for daily bread, even as he prays that we would be protected from the enemy, that temptation and sin would not have its way in your heart and mind. And so we have hope. We have joy. We can go forward into this battle knowing that our Savior is good. Jim Elliott, a famous missionary, says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So as we turn our attention to the idea and the passion of engaging in global missions, it can be frightening, can't it? Can you imagine Ashutosh? Can you imagine what it felt like for him to have his very life threatened? Can you imagine what it was like to be chased out away from the very people he sought to minister to? But he's no fool. He gave up what he couldn't keep to gain what he cannot lose. We are called to have the same perspective. So I'm going to close with Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28. But Jesus called to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." The divine purpose is that shalom would go to every corner of the earth. His mechanism is the church. It's you. And the plan for participation is that we would be forgiven of our debts so that we can participate and imitate Christ who gave himself as a ransom for many. That is our great hope. That is the, what we proclaim and that is what we send our missionaries to share. Let's bow our heads in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. We thank you that you don't call us to yourself and tell us to be good, but in fact you call us to yourself and renew us. That our forgiveness of sins is a gift from you and that our empowerment for mission is a gift from you as you have sent the helper into our hearts that we might be effective for the proclamation of the gospel both here in Brookhaven and around the world. We ask that you would give us a passion for your kingdom because we already know you are victorious even now over the world, the flesh, and the devil. We ask, we ask that your presence would give us hope and joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.